So today I wanted to discuss something of probably incredible importance because this week is the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. Um, so this episode is going to be about America's history with race and where, where we have been and where we go from here. This is going to be a much longer episode. I'm potentially going to try to break it up into two parts if I can't get it all into 30 minutes. So bear with me. We will do our best here. So, obviously, in social media and things like that, a lot of people like to say, well, America's a racist country, America's this, America's not that racist, America's this or that. You know, we always, you know, you know, we make these, we make these buzzwords, you know, we make these buzzword statements that can get us, you know, airtime or get us the best, you know, or the most amount of favorites or likes on a tweet or a Facebook post or Instagram, whatever it may be nowadays, without even looking at facts, without looking at pretty much of anything, right? You know, and the problem with that is that it really ignores the general history behind racial relations in America and, and the violence that goes with it. And not only the violence, but the good things that have come of race relations as well and how they have improved in the past clearly 240 plus years. So I wanted to start off, I mean, this might be a little bit chronological today. So this is more of a historical perspective than a political perspective on where we have been and then you decide, you know, if we are still that kind of country. And I really wanted to talk about, you know, really about America as an idea, right? So this country, you know, was founded, obviously, it is a colonial, it is a colonial uh, type country when it is founded um, under the Articles of Confederation, the 13 colonies, this, that, and the other, during the colonial period, right? It becomes a, obviously an independent country of sovereign states, independent of Great Britain in 1776, obviously. So I'm not going to rehash fully what happened at the Constitutional Convention. You can do that in your own time. But what I do want to rehash is something that's very important. You know, a lot of people like to say, well, our founders were racist. They were bigots. They were, you know, they were anti, you know, sorry, they were sexist. They were this, they were that. They were all these different things, right? And they didn't bring full equality upon Americans, right, all at once, right? Because that's what they were supposed to do, apparently. They needed to make it all the same. They needed to give everybody equal rights all at once in the 1770s, right? Now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have done that. It would have been nice, but they didn't, obviously. What I am saying is that if you look at the time frame of the 18th century, right, looking at the 18th century, the 1700s, most of the world was not, were, most of the world, probably if not the entire world, had not a single democracy on the planet. No constitutional democracy existed. No Republican form of government existed up until the 1770s. The United States is that first country that experiments with this Democratic-Republican idea that the people should elect their representatives and they should do what's in the best interest of, of them, in, whether it be in Congress, in the, in the presidency, or whatever it may be. The idea that people should have a say was a radical idea. And obviously, as people have a say at this in this time period, you know, people are going to be very opinionated about very interesting and not only interesting, but incredibly um, influential and consequential topics that were rather intense. And obviously, the main issue, you know, when the Constitution was, was ratified and, and was you know, obviously formed and ratified after the Articles of Confederation were thrown into the garbage can because they were inadequate and inefficient, was what do we do with an enslaved population? And how do we live up to the ideals of 
a free and equal country with an enslaved population? And can you really be free and equal with an enslaved population? That was a major question, you know. You know, it was really just the pink elephant in the room at the Constitutional Convention, you know. And one of the big issues was representation in how to, in, in apportionment in, in um, districts and Congress and things like that. You know, you have things like the Electoral College, you have things like the Three-Fifths Compromise. And the Three-Fifths Compromise basically said that a, an enslaved person, a black enslaved person, would be three-fifths of a human being. So per, I believe it was every white person, three-fifths of a human being per every white person in a state. I think that's how it went, you know. Um, but the three-fifths the three -fifths compromise was, you know, obviously, you know, a lot of people supported it at the time. It's unfortunate, but that's how that was. And the country is going to struggle, obviously, entering the 19th century with this idea of, you know, is there, is, is, how do we provide equality? Oh, but wait, should we even provide equality? Should we even provide freedom? Should black people get freedom? Oh, wait, they can't get freedom because they are slaves. And if they are slaves, they are not citizens. And if they are not citizens, they cannot vote and they cannot petition. They cannot assemble. They can't do anything. They are not protected under the Constitution, the document which was ratified at the convention, right, in 1787. So if they don't have any of these rights, they're not citizens. And if they are not citizens, they are not human beings. That is what it is under American law at the time. So, I wanted to bring in a couple tidbits here. So, Washington, you know, had stipulated in his will before he died that his slaves were to be freed, you know, in his will. Obviously, Virginia had a law on the books at the time that, you know, made it legal for slaveholders to manumit their slaves, you know, without special, you know, consideration or action by the governor or any state, you know, led counsel at the time. Obviously, you know, not all of his slaves were freed. Um, out of the 317 slaves, 123 of those obviously were owned by, by, by Washington. And they were to be freed upon Martha's death, his wife Martha, right? Um, obviously, there were stipulations about how, who, how these slaves would be allocated, who they would go to, what happens if the slaves were to die, you know, and, and this, that, and the other, and what happens if the slaves have kids, right? So... Obviously, you know, Washington believed, as many founders did at the time, not whether there was going to be a civil war or not. We kind of, they kind of figured there would be. It wouldn't be so much whether it was going to happen. It was when is it going to happen? And, you know, the founders knew that. They knew that race and they knew that how to deal with an enslaved population of four million people in the South. You know, obviously it wasn't until 1807 that the Atlantic slave trade had been halted by law when uh, President Jefferson signed a law um, blocking the importation of slaves from Africa. But anyway, before that, just, just to reverse just a little bit, um, that, is the, that was the big question. Can you have freedom and equality? Can they coexist together in an environment in which 4 million people in, in the United States are enslaved and they are not free? So w was this something you could do? It was thought at the time, you know, that it was not possible. That this kind of thing could not be possible. You know, so as we enter the 19th century, you know, a lot of people believe, you know, there's there's growing sentiment, such as, you know, along, I, I think it was the American Anti-Slavery Society was, you know, was formed. People like Angelina and Emily Grimke come into view. They were abolitionists. They were feminists. They were very young people. 
they those people you know had come forward in the antebellum era you know arguing that slavery was not only you know you know just wrong in the eyes of the law it was an immoral evil wrong and that it, it needed to be condemned and not only condemned it could not even be contained it must be abolished and this was a radical idea at the time that if you couldn't contain slavery and it just needed to be completely abolished you were seen as literally absolutely insane <laughs> and i know i know what you're thinking it's crazy that 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 is even insane today obviously we would think that is just the right thing to do but at the, at the time that was a radical idea so as time had gone along in the early 19th century what you had was you know people coming forward you know people like emily and angelina grimke are good are good examples because angelina and emily grimke were young girls you know in the north in the northeastern united states i think it was like massachusetts or something i think it was massachusetts yeah and they couldn't go to school because women were not allowed to go to school at the time so angelina's father you know and emily's father what they did instead was they tried to get emily and angelina to just read books from from their father's library and that was they're going to be that was going to be their form of education their access to education and obviously by the way at this time public education is not a thing in the united states yet Public education doesn't really become a thing until Europe invents public education, and which is the radical idea at the time that tax money should go to pay for public education, and the church and private entities should not provide that. But remember, we're in the antebellum era. It's the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. Public education is not widespread. It is not a thing yet. So women can't go to school anyway at this time. So Angelina and Emily Grimke, you know, they, they start talking all across the North. And they're, and, you know, they're going around speaking at, at, at halls of, in, of integrated people. They started speaking to crowds of integrated people. And not only that, they were the only two white women in the entire American South as well. I guess they were the South, sorry. They spoke in Massachusetts, but they were from the South, I believe. Don't quote me on that. I believe it was the South. But anyway, they had um, spoken in the South. They were the only two women from the South who had argued not only in favor of abolishing slavery, they had argued it from an incredibly interesting standpoint. They believed and they argued, you know, that women should have the right to petition to end slavery and that abolition should be, you know, a main thing. Angelina Grimke in 1838, you know, she spoke before the Massachusetts State Legislature. She was the first woman at the time to address a legislative body. And in her speech, she talked about a woman's right to petition to abolish slavery. So if you think about what she's doing here, right? She's making abolition not just an issue for enslaved people, but she's making it an issue for women. And women are really leading this movement. You know, she had been part of the um, American Anti-Slavery Society, as had Emily. You know, and this is 1838. Slavery is in full force in the South. And in the South, you know, cotton, you know, the South had, you know, a massive cotton kingdom advantage, as they called it, cotton kingdom. They had a massive um, advantage in cotton production by 1 to 67, as opposed to the North. Yeah, 1, sorry, excuse me, 67 to 1 when it comes to the South versus the North. 67 to 1, that is a massive advantage, right? 
So clearly, you know, cotton production is a big deal in the South. It is a major part of their economy. It is a major part of their labor, their labor force. So you have people like that coming forward who are fighting against slavery. And they're not just calling for let's just contain it to the territories and states of which it exists. They want it completely eradicated in the states it exists, the territories it exists, and not the spreading of it in general. And, you know, President John Quincy Adams, when he had left office, he was one of the very few presidents to actually serve back in Congress after serving as president. He had served one term from 1825 um, to 1829 when he was ousted by Andrew Jackson in 1828. Quincy Adams was against slavery. He was a Whig, and he was from um, the North, and he was against slavery. Quincy Adams had what was called the gag rule, and the gag rule was this thing in which it allowed the Congress to petition to allow for petitions arguing against not only slavery but for the abolition and the containment of slavery. And a lot of people in Congress hated Quincy Adams for always invoking the gag rule. And this is a, this is really goes back to, you know, there's people in Congress at the time. While a majority of Congress, you know, a lot of people from are from the South are serving in Congress, but Quincy Adams had, you know pissed everybody off. Some men in the South in Congress wanted him dead. They wanted to kill him. Open carry on the Senate and House floor was legal at this time. There was no laws against doing that. There were no laws about holding knives and bringing knives and daggers onto the floor. And a lot of men did that in these days, you know, in Congress. Open carry was a thing. That was normalized. That was very normal. Knives were a thing. So it wasn't too far-fetched to think that, oh, well, someone's going to get stabbed today or someone's going to get shot. Congress used to beat the living shit out of each other over issues such as slavery and other issues. You know, um, Charles Sumner got his head beat the shit out of. Sorry for my language, but that's just what happened. Charles Sumner got his head beat the crap out of by Preston Brooks with a cane, and he would be injured over, you know, equality, issues of equality and how to handle slavery. So, as we fast forward a little bit, right, then you have someone like Harriet Beecher Stowe, was an American activist, socialite, a woman. She had put forward about 30 books in her lifetime, and one of the most, you know, obviously the most famous books she put forward was called Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle Tom's Cabin was a book that basically, you know, informed the American public about what slavery was like and what it was like to be held in bondage under your slaveholder. Many Americans were stunned by what they read in the book and it was published. The southern southern people tried to get the book banned and the book horrified the north. And it accelerated this notion that slavery was not only wrong by law, it was an evil, immoral wrong, you know, in the eyes of God. This is a very religious country at this point. And the North is, you know, has this accelerating idea going, going on in, you know, political circles that slavery should obviously be contained to the territories that exist. That was the idea of some people. You know, then there were others who believed, no, the whole goddamn thing needs to be abolished. The whole institution is immorally flawed. It must be gone. It must be removed from American society. And, th and this is, this is, 
this is an idea that catches on a lot of people. So, as it is an idea that catches on a lot of people, there's still some people out there, like John C. Calhoun, who was vice president, you know, during the 1830s. And he gives speeches which basically fuel this notion that the South and the people in the South should have their rights protected, their right to own property. And their property is enslaved people. And if Southern planters and Southern people and plantation owners should have the right to own their property, they should also have the right to secede if their property is taken away from them or if their property is being threatened. Calhoun, obviously, is a very, not only interesting, but he is an awful figure in American history. He's an even awful human being to talk about. Senator James Henry Hammond of South Carolina. Hammond had been known for being a devout racist in Congress. He had been a devout supporter of slavery and the spread of slavery. He was a Democrat from South Carolina. And he gave, speech, he gave a speech on the floor of, the, of Congress. And he argued that African-Americans not only, you know, excuse me, that slavery not only should be um, defended and it should be allowed to spread, Senator Hammond argued that African-Americans liked working menial jobs. They liked being slaves. They enjoyed this kind of life. Therefore, if they enjoy this life, they, there's no need to make them free. What is the point in making them free? They don't need to be free. Why should they be free? Who the hell even cares, right? Hammond also, sidebar, Side note, you know, he uh, he was also known for raping and having sex with his black female slaves. And unfortunately, I hate to inform you, that was actually pretty common at the time by slaveholders in the South and in general. Pretty sad, but that is the case here. So Harriet Beecher Stowe, let's go back to her just a little bit. Her book is so important, Uncle Tom's Cabin, because it not only enrages the North and the country in general. Abraham Lincoln, when he had become president, he had he, he had met Beecher Stowe, and he, he used to call her, oh, so you're the little old lady that started the war. As a joke, obviously, but clearly the 1860s were incredibly tumultuous times. So there's that. As we have moved into you know, into the 1860s and 70s. America is experiencing a very interesting turn of events. The Civil War has ended, but a lot of Americans feel, well, if the war has ended, there's equality, right? And there's freedom. The black, black people have freedom. They have rights. So are we done yet? No, we're not done. And... Because Americans believe that the, that the, the work is not finished, what ends up happening basically is when, when Andrew Johnson takes the oath of office as president right after um, Lincoln had been assassinated in 1865, just probably a little over a month after he had taken office in his second term, Johnson had been the only senator from the Union, sorry, excuse me, from the South, um, who had stayed within the Union um, uh, as a senator in Congress. He was, a, he was from Tennessee. 
Johnson was a big believer in a unified union. Now, he wasn't really a fan of black people. Andrew Johnson had spoken to a joint session of the Congress one year as president in his uh, four years as president, one of the four years as president. And he said, you know, as long as I am president, this will be a nation for white men and only white men. And as long as he holds that office, that's what he swore would be. Andrew Johnson comes to power, 1865. Many Republicans and even radical Republicans like Charles Sumner and Daddy Stevens in, in the House had believed that they had, ha they had found their friend um, in Andrew Johnson. It became clear that Andrew Johnson was not only a devout racist, Andrew Johnson was, was hell-bent on destroying Reconstruction. And you know, an interesting thing about this, you know, is that the Civil War is really a war about what freedom means and to whom it should be afforded. Reconstruction is a battle about what does equality mean, to whom it should be afforded, and to how much should it be extended upon. And Reconstruction is defined by the Johnson period, Johnson administration, and it is defined by Grant's presidency and obviously it ends when Rutherford B. Hayes becomes president in 1877 with the Compromise of 1877, unfortunately. Reconstruction is smashed in 1877 and the work towards equality is almost all but diminished by that point. So just looking at, you know, let, you know, Andrew Johnson comes to power, he had promised you know, he, he, he comes to power and he starts to put African-Americans on the sidelines. He doesn't think Reconstruction is necessary. He doesn't really care. He makes it known he doesn't care. And when the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are passed, they are passed because the Enforcement Acts, which were acts that had pretty much done what the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments did. You know, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. The 14th Amendment defined what citizenship meant. The 14th Amendment, you know, was the very first time where citizenship was nationalized. The idea that you could be a U.S. citizen rather than just a citizen of Virginia, a citizen of Maryland, a citizen of Georgia, a citizen of Mississippi. The idea that citizenship was nationalized was a radical thing at the time. And then the 15th Amendment obviously would, would, be, given, would be giving the right to vote to formerly enslaved people and, and, to, and what that would mean. Obviously... You know, one thing we keep out is the 15th Amendment, while it gives black Americans the right to vote, it does not give in black women, Ameri black women who are Americans also the right to vote. It does not afford them that. And this pisses off a lot of women in the abolitionists who are part of the abolitionist movement. So women's suffrage is what I like to call the baby of the abolition movement and the baby of the Civil War because the women's suffrage movement is, is, is born out of this as well. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, many women had felt that why did we work so hard for abolition if we ourselves are not going to be given the same freedom and equality under the, under the eyes of the law as African-American men? And that was a big deal. How, how do you... How do you reconcile, this is, like I said, it goes back to freedom and equality. Can you have freedom and equality together? I believe that you can. Some people do not believe that, though. 
And Amer many Americans, even after the Civil War, do not believe that. Something else I wanted to mention really quick, you know, in Dred Scott versus Sanford, which was the probably which was the worst case ever decided by the Supreme Court of the United States, it was decided by Chief Justice Roger Brooks Taney, who, you know, he had decided in a majority opinion, aside from Justices Curtis and um, I forgot the other guy's name, sorry. <laughs> Justice Curtis and another justice were the dissent. Justice Justice Taney had decided that Dred Scott was not a citizen under the eyes of the law, which was true, he was not. But that Justice, um, excuse me, that uh, Dred Scott had no right to sue in court because he was not a human being, because he was not a citizen. That decision was decided. The entire majority had, had voted in favor of, of Taney's decision and his opinion. Curtis was the dissent, who was also on the dissent, and I don't remember the guy's name. I should know this. I don't know his name. I forgot it. And, you know, Dred Scott obviously accelerates in 1850, in the 18, in the late 1850s, the idea that the Civil War is just almost all but inevitable at this point, right? And it had become pretty apparent that that war was inevitable by this point. You know, however, after the war, just a little bit, right, right, right after the war, when Andrew Johnson had been impeached, he obviously was acquitted in the Senate by a single vote by Senator, I think his name is Edmund Ross of Kansas. He, um, Edmund Ross had obviously, you know, there are some rumors that he had been paid off to vote to acquit President Johnson. Um, many Republicans hated President Johnson, and Johnson was such a terrible president, Johnson believed he could not win renomination or not not win renomination he could not win a democratic party's nomination in 1868 so we go into 1869 with a new president by the name of ulysses grant hiram ulysses grant was his name well we know him by ulysses s grant but <laughs> sidebar the s in his name he doesn't have a middle name guys sorry the s was just a random name it was a mistake made at west point when he went to go sign up at west point when he went to check in ulysses grant went and said, well, you guys have mistaken my name for some guy named Ulysses S. Grant. It's actually Hiram Ulysses Grant. Sorry, this is just, you know, a <laughs> side note. But Grant comes to power, 1869. Grant had been a major abolitionist. He had, he had a single slave. He owned a single slave. Grant personally was far more radical than Abraham Lincoln was. Abraham Lincoln truly believed that slavery, yeah, should be abolished, but more importantly, the union should be preserved Slaves with slaves or no slaves. So Abraham Lincoln was more of a moderate, on, a moderate Republican on slavery. Um, Grant was more of a liberal Republican on slavery. So Grant believed that slavery was an evil, immoral wrong that must be condemned and destroyed. He freed his one slave he personally freed his one slave. He went down to the courthouse to free him. He did it by himself. When Jefferson Davis had announced that he had become the president of the, of the Confederate States of America in 1861 and that the South had seceded, had begun to secede, Grant had lost his mind. Grant had truly believed that this was the end and that America, as we know, was on its way out. Grant had sent troops to the South to enforce laws that were to protect blacks against the advice of his advisors who told him not to do that. He did it anyway. And the country was better for it 
because he did that. Now, we move a little bit forward here. And we, you know, we, we moved to 1890, to the late 1890s. Dred Scott was law. It had, you know, Dred Scott obviously had been, you know, history by this point because now black people were citizens. Therefore, Dred Scott was now obsolete and moot. Plessy versus Ferguson had decided that while black people had equal, you know, had the, the ability to have equal access to facilities, to public facilities such as rail cars, they did not have the ability to be fully integrated and not quite. And, you know, um, Plessy versus Ferguson decided that on the doctrine of separate but equal, that black people had equal access to these public facilities, but they couldn't, like, for example, if you were to go on a bus, you, you, you could sit on the bus, but you got to sit on the back of the bus. That's what Plessy versus Ferguson said was allowed. Oh, you have access to the bus. You just can't sit in the front with the white people. You got to go to the back. Plessy v. Ferguson was legal. It was justified. It was American law. So this is going to be the first part to this um, two-part series of America's history with race relations. So I will see you in just a few seconds. So this is part two of this episode today. So we go into the 20th century. The president is Theodore Roosevelt after President William McKinley had been assassinated in 1901, in September of 1901, back in Buffalo, New York. Teddy Roosevelt is the new president and he, in, he does something radical at this time, which, was known, which is known to be radical. He invites Booker T. Washington, who was a formerly enslaved person to the White House, to dine. And the media lost their shit. Print media lost their shit. The country lost its mind over this. And I'm saying this because presidents before Teddy Roosevelt had discussed issues of race mm, to an extent. You know, Abraham Lincoln obviously had. Um, and many, Ameri many American presidents had discussed race in positive and in negative ways, obviously, and oftentimes at this, at this point, in more negative than positive ways. They had, they had discussed, you know, issues of slavery, issues of equality and freedom and, and whatever it may be. But no American president after the Civil War had really invited a black person to, to dine at the White House. That, that hadn't happened. You know, it just wasn't a thing. <coughs> Excuse me. But Teddy Roosevelt invites Booker T. Washington to dine at the White House with him and have dinner. And this was, this was in, the, the media lost, lost it over this. So this shows you where the country is going, you know, in the early 20th century, you know, as early as 1901. You know, I, I don't know if, it was, if he invited Washington to the White House in 1901. I think it was 1904. I think it was 1904. I could be wrong. But that's not the point. He had done this. This was a, you know, a new thing at the time. So African Americans, do they have freedom? Sure. On paper. They have freedom on paper in the early 20th century. The 1900s and 1910s, yeah, they had freedom. They also 
you know, suffer from the Ku Klux Klan that was formed in the 1860s, excuse me, the 1860s and 70s. They also suffered from lynchings. They suffered from public displays of humiliation through lynchings. They had suffered from their limbs being cut off at polling locations. They had suffered from Jim Crow laws. They had suffered from black codes. They had suffered from eight box laws. Um, they had suffered from, and if you don't know what eight box law is, let me explain actually. A legal way of segregation in the American South up until the 20th century, I mean, it was probably legal through the 20th century too, honestly, if we think about it, was if, if you're an African-American, you went to go vote, right? Sure, you first, before you go vote, you gotta pay your poll tax because that was legal at the time. You had to pay your poll tax. You might be given a literacy test, see if you can even read. And after you do all of that, you go into the polling place, and let's say it's a midterm election, you're voting for governor and the whole ballot and the cabinet, whatever it may be. You weren't given a single ballot with every position on the ballot if you were black. You were given multiple ballots for a single position. So for governor, you would give you would be given one ballot for let's say lieutenant governor, sec you know, secretary of state, for state treasurer, comptroller, secretary of whatever it may be. You were given a single ballot per position. So what white people at polling locations would do is they would get these these eight these eight separate boxes, whether for eight different positions for the cabinet and a state or whatever it may be. And a black person would put their ballot in the wrong box because the white poll workers would mix up the boxes in a different row, mix it all up, and it, that would cause irregularities, voter fraud. It was completely intentional by the white poll workers to do this because they did not want black people's votes to count. Eight box laws obviously are illegal today. They, uh, clearly, they're, they're you know they're criminalized today, but that was legal back then. That was 100% the law, and it was allowed, and it was legal and justified. So, as we move forward here, the 1920s going forward are a period of, of incredible racial strife, especially with the Tulsa Massacre of 1921, which is today marks 100 years since the massacre. The massacre started on May 31st, and on 19, of 1921 and it ended today June 1st of 1921 1921 300 African Americans were killed 10,000 African Americans lost their homes according to a commission in 2001 um, report and Tulsa at the time was really seen as the, the Wall Street for African Americans who wanted to own businesses create businesses hire black employees pay them Black communities lived in Tulsa. They, you know, they lived, they, they su supposedly thrived. And then this white mob came into town after the, you know, murder of a white woman by a black person at the time. And they just ransacked the town, vandalized it, burned down homes and churches and just slaughtered African-Americans. The number at the time, um, it was confirmed up until 2001 that it was only 39 blacks that were killed. It is clear that it's approximately 300 now that were killed. And 10,000, obviously, as I said prior, had lost their homes and become homeless. Tulsa and what happened in Tulsa 100 years ago today is a reminder that even 100 years ago, our country 
sure, had it made, you know, progress on race when it come to voting? Mm, yeah, on paper. Had it made progress when it made black people citizens? Yeah, it had. Had it allowed black people to petition? Mm, yeah. Had it allowed black people to be part of the polity? Sure, on paper. But did they really have the freedom and equality as the country and the men and women who had formed the, well, the men who had formed the country, but did they really have all these freedoms, rights, liberties, and equality, you know, in equal opportunity as everyone else? No, they did not. And legal and laws on the books had made sure that they had not, even after Jim Crow and black codes had been legal. I mean, excuse me, because Jim Crow and black codes were legalized, were legal, they had allowed for these people not to achieve their full potential. And that is the unfortunate truth here. So the 1921 massacre was an egregious crime. President Biden today met with Governor Stitt of Oklahoma and he gave a speech and spoke about this, talking about, you know, we, we need to, you know, face this reality. I personally don't believe America is a racist country. I don't believe that. Do I believe we have a history that is that is spotty? I do believe it has a very questionable I don't maybe I should that's not the word I should use. Our nation's history is littered with horrible acts horrible and egregious things that today we obviously, even then as it was then, terrible things. Horrible, egregious sins. But our country doesn't have the inability to not repair those things. So one of the, one of the interesting things about our country is that we have the ability to change, and I think that's what makes it great. America is not great because it has a constitution and on paper it says that we have all these rights. It is great because people have forged to make the constitution as strong as it is and have worked to perfect the union that our founders had originally wanted us to, to commit to, which is to appeal to not only better, better angels of our nature, but to live by our highest ideals and to work to perfect the union that they had died to create preserve, protect, and defend, especially in times of war, including the Civil War. That work is up to us, to all of us. So, as we enter the 1940s and 50s, and the 60s a little bit, are African Americans free yet? They had fought in World War II. One million of them had fought in World War II. No, they weren't, though. They still were not free enough. But Harry Truman, when he was president, had integrated the armed forces. Many, many battalions and regiments had believed that well, this was not a good idea. No, we should not integrate armed forces. That's what a lot of people thought. President Truman did. And as we entered the 1950s, however, after the armed forces had been integrated, we walk, we walk into the, the Eisenhower presidency. Eisenhower was scared of another civil war breaking out because the South had been on fire yet again. 
President Eisenhower had sent troops to Little Rock to integrate the public schools there and the universities there as Governor George Wallace, a devout racist and, and Southerner, had stood in the doorway of, Al of an Alabama school to block little black girls from going inside to register for classes at a public university. President Eisenhower sent troops to integrate that by force through the uh, National Guard. Many people thought at the time that that was an, it was an egregious abuse of power. George Wallace <laughs> certainly thought it was an egregious abuse of power of the federal government. And then, and then this, this should not have happened. That's, that is what he believed. Now, de jure versus de facto segregation is, is an issue here. The de facto was by law. De jure was, excuse me, de jure was by law. De facto was what was just reality, what was going on. So on, by law, the, by, by de jure law, Eisenhower had wanted to commit to following the law and allowing those schools to integrate. Now, afterwards, Brown versus Board of Education. Brown versus Board had repealed Plessy v. Ferguson of 1898. Brown versus Board had said that all public schools in the United States in all 50 states were, to, excuse me, not, there weren't 50 yet, there were only 48, excuse me, because Hawaii and Alaska had not been added yet, that in all states in the United States, public schools were to be integrated completely. And Earl Warren was the chief justice at the time who had decided this, who, who was in the majority opinion and helped decide this. This repealed separate but equal doctrine that was decided in Plessy versus Ferguson Brown versus Board of Education was now law. Many white Southerners had wanted Justice, you know, Chief Justice Warren impeached. They said that he he was rewriting law on the, you know, making law on the books, and that he was over overstepping his authority as the Chief Justice of the United States. George Wallace had said that this that the decision in Brown versus Board was a decision to that would appease criminals, communists, and atheists. He, he, he called this kind of an issue a fraud, a sham, and a hoax. George Wallace, so you know where he stands on the issue of race. And Chief Justice Warren could remember when he was younger. I think it was the, it was the 1950s, I believe. He was in a car, an African-American was driving him to a hotel. He got in a room in a hotel... The black man who had drove him to the hotel had slept in the car. He asked the man, why did you sleep in the car? The black man said, well, I slept in the car because I could not find a hotel, sir, where that, that would be able to take care of me and let me stay a night and sleep. Warren will remember that the rest of his life. Warren would take that with him the rest of his life. So the question a freedom and equality had been engraved in not only the, the judiciary of the, of the country, it had been engraved in the moral compass of the country that civil rights was now something to be reckoned with. That this was not only an issue of whether to some people it was states' rights, to other people it was moral. This was an issue of morality. Warren understood that. And Warren remember what happened to that man many years later after he had decided that. Now, as we move, obviously, a little bit forward here, 
into the 1960s. You know, as we move a little bit forward to the 1960s. Um, sorry, excuse me. My brain is just a crazy right now. In 1964, when the Democrats had met at their convention in 1964, right after Kennedy had been assassinated, obviously Kennedy had been expected to be the, the presidential nominee. He had obviously been, been murdered. Lyndon Johnson was going to be the nominee. Hubert Humphrey was going to be the vice presidential candidate. A woman by the name of Fannie Lou Hamer spoke before the Democratic National Committee's Credentials Committee to ask that black delegates be seated at the 1964 convention. She had done work with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the 1960s. The committee had been dissolved by 1977. I believe it was 1977. It was the 1970s. I think it was the 70s. 1977. Fannie Lou Hamer was known for her quote where she said, we just want to be treated as decent human beings, unquote. As she said that to the Credentials Committee, it really made a lot of white men on the committee extremely uncomfortable. This was at the Democratic National um, Convention. And when it was happening, Lyndon Johnson was watching, and he was, he was enraged. He was furious. He immediately ordered a press conference the moment that Fannie Lou Hamer was speaking just, just have a press conference, just to, excuse me, a conference just to talk. Nothing, not, nothing of any importance. He just did not want the media to watch Fannie Lou Hamer's speech. He did not want that broadcast on television. Remember, at this time, millions of Americans now own televisions. So that is their major form of communication aside from the telephone. Fannie Lou Hamer changed the country. A couple of black delegates were seated at that convention because of what she said. And what she did in spite of President Johnson's, you know, unnecessary press conference. Until 1964, you know, black people could not be served at a local lunch counter. Uh, black guests could only get takeout food. You know, a lot, a lot of black guests could only get takeout food in a, from a restaurant. They could not sit inside the restaurant. This was a big deal. So 1964 comes around. President Johnson is elected to a full four-year term in his own right. And immediately after the Civil Rights Act in the, of 1964 had been signed into law by him, Russell Kirk, who had been the Senate Democratic leader at the time, you know, had told Lyndon Johnson that he had lost the South for a generation because the South had been democratic. And he was right. The South today is, is Republican red. It is no longer in democratic hands. So when the Civil Rights is passed, Civil Rights Act is passed, um, a guy by the name of McClung was in chart was the manager at Lena's Barbe Lena's Barbecue, excuse me, Lena's Diner in Birmingham, Alabama. He had felt with his son that well, now that black people can be served, we don't want to serve black people because it's going to scare away the white customers. So we're going to take this to court. It was brought to court in, in Katzenbach versus McClung. Katzenbach versus McClung was decided in the majority opinion that the Congress of the United States did have the right to regulate interstate commerce. And therefore, because it has the right to do that, it struck, it, 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 it went against what McClung had wanted. Therefore, black Americans could have full rights 
to eat at a lunch counter and be served in a restaurant, which was a private business. Now, obviously, people like at the Atlanta, the Atlanta Heart Motel, I think that is what it's called in Atlanta, some people did not want to enforce these laws. Some business owners did not want to enforce these laws because they felt that it was an infringement on their rights as business owners in the private sector to tell them what to do. The government had no right doing that, and that is what they believed. And one one of the things, excuse me, um, let me just actually tell you the quote that was used at the time. You know, hold on. Excuse me. But anyway, so McClung had said that it was an infringement on his rights. And therefore, if it is an infringement on his rights, then it, it, it is wrong. That this is, this is bad. And, oh, I found it. Here it is. And, he's, and McClung had said, most people are going to say the heart of the matter was the rights of black people. The real heart of the matter was, now wait a minute, the federal government can't come in and tell us what to do. We're a local business. A three-judge panel in Birmingham had initially sided with his family, but on an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously against McClung, saying that the state's rights defense to justify the segregation in the South was, was not adequate enough. Therefore, African-Americans could be served at a local lunch counter. Now, moving forward from that, the Voting Rights Act obviously was, um, it, it had become law by 1965, which had banned um, literacy tests, uh, eight box laws, poll taxes, things like that. that. Those were now all illegal. Those are all now illegal. So as we move forward here, after Katzenbach versus McClung, right? We fast forward a little bit to the late the late 20th century, early 21st century. And we enter a period of which we are we are still dealing with a lot of racial strife, right? I mean, we we still are. And you know, most notably, you know, besides you know, obviously to today being the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre, George Floyd killed last year, you know, it was an egregious crime by law enforcement. I am pro-law enforcement. I can tell you that much. But I can also tell you that that was an egregious crime. And the decision that was decided in the verdict to find the officer in that case guilty, Derek Chauvin guilty, I think it was on both counts, I believe, whatever those counts were, murder, manslaughter, whatever it was, were the right counts. Many African Americans throughout the 19th and 20th century when they had been accused of something, they had not been, you know, given due process. They were deprived of it. That was norm that was a normality. So to have an African American who who has now who's who's dead, as of obviously last year, but to have a white man, law enforcement, but just a white person in general, con you know, not only you know, convicted on two counts to many people is progress to me that at least to me that's progress that is a step in the right direction so to go a little bit forward here 
to nearly finish this off. Our founders were imperfect people. And you're probably thinking, why did I say all of this? Why did I give a history lesson today? Why did I make this in two parts? I made this in two parts because I want people to understand something. Race in this country and the history that, that surrounds race is, is, is scattered. It is, it is told the rose-colored glasses. It is messy, though. It is cruel. It is uncomfortable. And it should make you uncomfortable. But does that mean that America is inherently a racist country and it's flawed to the core and that the Constitution should be abolished? No, it should not be. Because the founders believed that it was all up to all Americans to perfect the union that they left behind, and it is up to us to perfect it. Because if we don't perfect it and we don't work towards making our democratic republic even better, who's going to do that? Who's going to fight for whom, whomever to do that? Nobody will. Our country is not perfect. It will never be perfect, though. But we can make it more perfect. We have done that through our history. From Emily and Angelina Grimke, to Harry Truman, to Dwight Eisenhower, to Fannie Lou Hamer, to, to Justice Curtis and the Dred Scott decision, Harriet Beecher Stowe, John Quincy Adams, Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses Grant, and so much more in the rest. And obviously, Justice Warren, Chief Justice Earl Warren. The work is up to us, not to anybody else. Does that mean that we are going to have missteps still, even though we've come so far? Absolutely, we are going to do that. That is expected. But progress is sometimes slow. It is proven to be slow. But one thing we, have, we know that is true is this. Freedom can coexist with equality. It is possible because they, they go hand in hand. The notion that politicians meddle around is, is, well, if you're giving one group of people freedom and equality, you're taking it away from somebody else. That is not true. Freedom and equality is not pie. Your civil rights and civil liberties are not pie. You are not making someone less free by making another group of people free. That is a notion that is, a, that is an old Southern notion an old, extremely conservative notion that is just not true. There were many years ago people had said that if, if blacks had the right to vote, it would also make it so women were right, would have the right to vote. And if women had the right to vote, then men would be deprived of their freedom and that white men would be deprived of their freedom. If, if all of this was allowed, you know, that's what they said would happen. But you know what? That has not happened. It hasn't. July 3rd, 1964, uh, a boy by the, by the name of Eugene Young was 13 years old. He had walked into a hair salon in Kansas City, Missouri to get a haircut. They would not see him the day before because under the laws of the United States, he could not get one. This was the day after the Civil Rights Act had, had, had been signed. He sat down in a chair and a white man gave him a haircut. This was America. This was civil rights. 